so many of you here. And I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Um, so I'm kind of new at this whole preaching thing. And so one of the things I've developed is I always like to come out and for my mic check, I'll like test out a joke or something. And usually I'll pull the audience, like the few people that are here early to be like, is it a go or is it a no? And this morning it was really weird because I was late for my mic check for one and two, nobody was in here. Nobody. So if this joke is horrible, blame Daniel, our sound guy, who didn't give me any feedback about it at all. All right, so here we go. So I, I, don't, like, I don't like cracking jokes about Jesus because he's the reason for the season, okay? So that, that's sacred, and we're going to talk lots about uh, Jesus today. I don't like making fun of him. But I figure Santa and his reindeer, well, it's open season, all right? That's just how I feel about it in terms of cracking jokes. So I want to ask you a question. I've kind of, I've started to notice this, uh, being that it's Christmas time and everybody's always watching Christmas movies on, on TV and Netflix and so have you. Have you noticed that Christmas movies with Santa Claus in them either have eight reindeer and it's about Santa or it has nine reindeer and the show's all about Rudolph. Have you ever noticed that? I figure Christmas movies about Santa can be divided into two things. There's either those that are, Rudolph's not even invited, he's not there, or it's all about Rudolph. Have you noticed that? Yeah. I keep thinking, you know, what is the deal with Rudolph? Is he the kind of Rudolph, the kind of deer that's just like, if the movie's not going to be all about him, he doesn't want any part of it? Is that his thing? Like, is he the kind of reindeer where his nose gets out of joint? And that's why it's red, friends. That's why it's red. <laughs> nice! I love my wingman up there. Fantastic. Um, want to welcome you here. This, uh, what, what message am I preaching here? The, today is actually kind of a wrap-up to sort of a series that we've been in. It is Case for Christ. Uh, this is, it's a four-part series, and I'm preaching part five. So go figure. Um, so with that, there's, there's not, uh, I'm excited about where we're going, but it's sort of meant to be a bit of a wrap-up. Now, during this season, we've actually been looking a lot at um, kind of evidence that supports, like, is this baby in the manger who the Bible says he is? And so our series has been looking at sort of four avenues of evidence. Uh, those avenues have been, the first one is like the eyewitness accounts, the gospels. Can they be trusted? Is what they say about Jesus actually true? And then we looked at um, the scientific evidence. You know, does archaeology and science confirm the biblical account of what the eyewitnesses saw? So we explored that. In week three, uh, we looked at something called the profile evidence, which is, does Jesus, does the baby in a manger actually fit kind of with the attributes of being God? And then fourth and finally, we looked at something called um, the fingerprint evidence, which was looking at Jesus specifically and seeing as to whether he and he alone could match up with uh, evidence uh, in terms of being the Messiah, the promised one. And so today... Uh, I really want to kind of emphasize the reality that in the midst of all of this evidence and where you land with that, today is a day where we make a verdict about who Jesus is. Now, not something that's just like a cognitive thing, 
but something that is a, a heartfelt awareness. And so that's where we're going to jump in uh, today. I do want to welcome, uh, I don't know if I welcomed everybody here or not, but I do want to welcome you here, and today is a little bit more chaotic because there's kids all over the place, and that's okay. It's going to be a little bit more chaotic, so help, if you don't help corral kids, you know, help get them some more crayons or coloring pages, whatever you need to do. Um, I really wanted to prepare my message to be a little more interactive with the young people that we have in our audience. Um, but I spent uh, two days of my working week uh, sick at home, trying to keep all my insides on my insides, and they really wanted to be on my outsides. And so in the last couple of days, I've, I prepared, and I just didn't get around to kind of making, having that little bit extra for our, our little people. So I, I apologize for that. But I am, I am pleased and, and excited to, to give you what the Lord has given me on the inside, to bring it to the outside for you, in the best sense of the word. I'm feeling much, much better. Um, if you'd like to, you can get ready. Uh, there's the pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, you can follow along. Uh, we're actually, I, I love to just camp out in a single story, uh, in a single portion of scripture. It's kind of my thing. I usually end up reading the Bible and, and end up not looking anywhere on, else beyond that story because I just get so caught up and feel there's so much to expound on just those short verses. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the story in Matthew chapter 2. And we're looking at verses specifically 1 to 12. Uh, and that's on page uh, 783 for you in your Pew Bible. Pew Bible? Bench Bible? What do we call it? I think Steve, Pastor Steve calls it Bench Bible. And I didn't like that because I grew up going to church and it's pews. And so I thought, Pew Bibles. But I got thinking about it today. I got thinking, Bench Bible. And I'm like, I don't like it because you don't bench the Bible. Right? You don't ever bench the Bible. But... When the Bible gets off the bench, it's a home run every time. So now I don't mind, I don't mind if for those of you that like baseball. That's my thought. Bench Bible, I'm fine, and now I'm fine with it. I'm at peace with it. Anyway, so if you're in Matthew here uh, on chapter 2, I, it's really important for this story that we understand it in kind of its context as a whole in the book of Matthew. So Matthew is one of those guys who was an eyewitness. He was a disciple of Christ. And he wrote those stories down and told that stories. His conviction about who he knew Jesus Christ to be. Now, what I'm learning is I read and study the Bible. Sometimes it's not so much about what they specifically say, though that is incredibly important. Part of it, too, is looking at the way in which they say it or the way in which they introduce um, certain content and certain stories. And so this story, I, I really believe this story is a great one and that it introduces something really remarkable. Um, you have to know that Matthew is all about recognizing Jesus as the king. The king of earth, the king of heaven, and the king of the kingdom of God, which he speaks about. So rightly so, he has a very high view, the highest view, in fact, of um, Jesus. And if you look at the way he introduces his book, some people find it kind of boring because Matthew jumps in with a whole bunch of genealogies. And, you know, what good sermon preacher can preach 
an entire sermon on just the genealogies of Jesus, right? They're kind of hard to get through, and yet Matthew does this. He takes the time, and what he's actually expounding here is he's telling you about the hereditary... Heredity? Heritage? Let's go with heritage. I think heredity is right, though, but not like heretic. I mean, like, his, his background, the, the, the family line, the lineage of Jesus... And so Matthew spells that out from the beginning to the end of Jesus being the son of David, okay? The next story you'll find is a one that's probably titled in your Bible as Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. And in this story, Matthew actually combines not only does Jesus have an earthly lineage, but Jesus also actually has divine lineage as well, right? Through the virgin birth. And so this is important to Matthew. He's saying we have both a human and we have divine taking place in Jesus. The incarnation, this amazing mystery. And then the next thing we find is that chapter 2 moves into sort of like this giving homage to a king. Where people would travel from afar and uh, come and, and worship or acknowledge, bring gifts to uh, the pronouncement of a new king. So the cool thing about where we are in this text, in Matthew chapter 2, is this is kind of Matthew's big unveiling. Like this is his, this is the announcement of the king, okay, of Jesus. So it's, it's a big deal. So the way in which he tells the story, I think, matters. And we're going to get to that, but if, uh, if I don't pray now, I'll totally forget. So please pray with me. <sighs> Jesus, you're awesome. This season is all about you. We're so grateful that you want to be with us, that you are God with us. I thank you that your coming changed absolutely everything. And Lord, we ask that would you be here with us today, that as we spend these moments together in prayer and in studying your word, Lord, would we know that you're here in our midst? Would you speak to our hearts? Lord, I know that there's friends gathered here, Lord God, that are experiencing stress, experiencing struggles, experiencing hard times. And I know, Lord, you want to minister to that. You want to call them to yourself and you have it exactly what they need. You want to bring peace and joy into our lives in a way that is not dependent on our circumstances. So we praise you for that reality and ask that you be present here with us in the reading of your word. Amen. So here we go. I'm going to read through once through the story and then uh, all 12 verses and then I'm going to kind of backtrack and I'll sort of break it apart a couple verses uh, at a time. So here we go. Matthew chapter 2. The big reveal. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have, prophet has written. But you, 
Bethlehem in the land of Judea are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So heading back to our first chapters, did you know that Matthew actually misses Christmas Eve? He actually misses the birth of Jesus. Now it's kind of it's kind of caught in here in terms of uh, at the end of verse one, it uh, mentions about how Joseph um, Joseph woke up, did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. And when Jesus was born, he gave him the name Jesus. But that's about all Matthew goes into. Immediately he transitions, and one of the neat things about this is that that key word, after. Other language in this thing suggests, rather than using baby, the baby Jesus, they use child. And so insinuates that actually the birth has already happened, and this this event could be as much as two years past the time of Jesus' birth because he's already a child or a toddler. I find it a little bit humorous uh, that Matthew kind of uh, skips over all the, the little tiny baby Jesus stuff, um, mostly because uh, my wife and I, we have just six weeks-ish, no, five weeks-ish ago, we welcomed our uh, new daughter, uh, Autumn Sky, into our family. And uh, my, wife, my wife doesn't like, doesn't like the newborn baby stage. It's just, the, and I don't blame her, it's... I watch her to looking after that child, and I'm like, that looks exhausting. I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't like that either. And, and so I kind, of, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm, she's in good company with Matthew. Matthew probably figured, you know what, Luke covered all this stuff. I don't need to write about this again. We're gonna... So he chooses a different story to, to bring about the, the proclamation of who Jesus is. Now, I don't know about you, but as I sat with this text, I found myself laughing in the audience, or laughing in my office, laughing while I was at home. No, 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 I mean it, like actually laughing out loud. And the reason is, is because I think Matthew is a little bit of a comedian. I think he's, now I don't know, I I can't find any commentaries to back me up on this, but when I read this story, Knowing who Matthew is, knowing that he's writing this book to the Jewish people to proclaim who Jesus is, how does he introduce the proclamation of Jesus as the king of the Jews? Isn't it crazy that he uses some strangers? He uses magi. Like, people who aren't Jewish... People who aren't even from the region. In fact, 
Um, some, some of the stuff I read suggested that these magi could have probably come from like Babylon area, which would have been um, east of Jerusalem. And they probably could have traveled something like seven months to get there. And it's interesting because it was probably like a caravan of people. We always think three. We always think three because of the three gifts. But actually the Bible gives no reference to how many there were. It just says that they were. But if you'll remember uh, a little bit later where Herod kind of gets disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. I find it interesting that, you know, just three guys sort of sneaking in with their backpacks, looking, following the star, would cause Jerusalem to be in that kind of uproar. I kind of tend to think it's sort of like this royal caravan of people coming on a mission. Anyways, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And so Matthew uses this to introduce, to introduce who Jesus is. Like, I find that funny. It's, it, seems like a, it seems like the beginning of a joke to me. Like, Jerusalem is the epicenter of Judaism. It has the temple. In fact, it has a brand new, remodeled, refashioned temple mount that is amazingly beautiful, that's actually constructed, headed up by Herod himself. Okay, it's beautiful. It's where all the sacrifices happen. It is the epicenter of Judaism, okay? Many chief priests, scholars, Make a living off the temple and that kind of a culture. It's the hub. And yet when it comes to the proclamation of who Jesus is, who walks in? But some Gentiles. Some strangers. I feel like, I feel like it's the beginning of a great joke where Matthew's like, you know, you know, um, there's Jerusalem and who walks in but three Gentiles and they say, Where's this kid who's been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. Like, doesn't that strike with a little bit of humor that he's talking to the very city who, whose whole existence has been building up, awaiting this Messiah, awaiting the coming of their Lord, and yet the first ones, the ones that beat them to the punch, are these Gentiles. I find it, I find it hilarious. And I think Matthew is wanting to make a little bit of a statement by telling this story first. Um, I've spoken a little bit about the Magi. Um, these probably wouldn't have been kings. They, they probably would have been more like uh, noblemen or wise men in the sense that they would have been sort of like, advi- like court advisors and they would have been skilled in probably things of like, because they're Gentiles, like astrology, wisdom, and even, um, oh, where's my notes here? It's not magic, but sort of like kind of in religious sort of incantation type things. Keep in mind these are pagan kind of Gentiles, right? But it's, it's known that because of the widespread nature of Judaism, because of, because of all the like the dispersion where like people would come in and the, the Jews would all be like hauled out to other, other, when they'd be conquered, they'd be hauled out to other lands to live. Many Jews just stayed there. And so you have these Jewish communities that have popped up all over the place. So it's likely that our wise men, our magi, probably knew some of the Jewish scriptures, and that's what has brought them here, this star. Now, the star, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this too, but the star... If you do some readings, you know, some say, well, you know, it could have been a comet, it could have been a supernova, 
Or it could have been, what's the third one? This thing where like the planets all sort of align and kind of become a cluster and there's a really cool C technical a combobulation. That's what I'm going to go with. That's my technical word for it. A combobulation of like planets in the sky that would have shone bright and the wise men would have been like, this is heralding, somehow they knew that this was heralding the birth of a king of the Jews. Verses 3 and 4, we move on that Herod gets news of this and he and Jerusalem are upset. They're disturbed. Now, I realize that if you're totally, completely brand new to this story, for me to paint Herod in a bad light would seem like I'm, you know, like I'm taking sides or whatever. But just like a spoiler alert, he does try to like, you know, he does murder a whole bunch of kids under the age of two later on in a text we don't get to. So he's like not a good guy and actually verified from uh, extra biblical sources like history books that, that aren't the Bible. We actually find out that Herod was just sort of this nasty ruler. Like he wasn't a very pleasant guy. And I wish that he would have been disturbed I wish that he would have been disturbed on hearing this news about the star because he goes, man, how do we miss it? The, the king of the Jews, the Messiah has been born and we've missed it? Like, oh my goodness, like that, would, like that should disturb the Jewish people that it's these Gentiles heralding the birth of their Messiah rather than them. But it's not. <clears throat> So we know that Herod doesn't have the best of intentions. Did you know that he's currently the king of the Jews? Oh, so all of a sudden you realize where the rub comes. You probably wouldn't like it too much if, you know, if I was sitting one morning eating my Cheerios, having my cup of coffee, and my son walked in and said, there's a new man of the house, Dad. He's only 20 months, so we'd have... And he's not really talking yet, so that'd be really odd for him to say that. I would probably take the list. I'd listen well. You know what he said? He said, there's a new boss in time. And in a sense, that's sort of what Herod is hearing, is that there's somebody new has come to town. The one born the king of the Jews. The one who would take Herod's rightful place. You see, Herod had the title of king of the Jews, but he wasn't Jew. He wasn't a Jew. And so it was always this tension. He had a great relationship with Rome, and he was ruling over these Jewish people. And so in an effort to sort of keep the Jewish people happy or at least submissive, he'd sink tons of money into building projects like the temple to sort of keep them on, on his side. But you know how it goes when you're navigating positions of power is that there's always somebody out to sort of usurp you or come after you or unsettle you or want that position. And so Herod tended to be a very paranoid person person when it comes to his position. And in fact, history tells us that he had, you know, gotten rid of members of his family who would be a threat. He was such a scoundrel, if you can imagine that actually Caesar Augustus was uh, quoted as saying that I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Meaning playing a play on words there in the Greek between pig and son because they sound sort of the same. But he's making a point. It was safer to be a swine to Herod than to be 
a member of his own family because he was that paranoid. So we begin to get a sense that actually the context here around our Christmas story, around this story, is one of much kind of tension and unsettledness. Herod was a strong military leader. He was a brilliant politician. He earned the term great, Herod the Great, because of his many, uh, his many building projects and his reputation as a builder. He had brutal treatment of those who opposed him. Paranoid, feared of being overthrown. And actually, I find out that he actually had a particular fear about the east because to the west of him laid all of Rome and he was in good with Rome, so he had that to fall back on. But towards the, um, towards the east, things were a little more open. And so there would have been this sort of suspicion of anybody coming from the east, especially, especially Gentile noblemen coming to worship another king, born king of the Jews, and wanting to worship him. The homage that Herod would have appreciated for himself from these men was not given, but was reserved for a child that's just been born. What made Herod probably even more nervous is that in working with the chief priests and the elders in Jerusalem, uh, many of these positions would have been ones that he would have um, appointed to try and keep his his position of power. Um, But there would be others where it would be very divided, where there would be some that would be all about messianic prophecies and this desire that just ran through the Jewish people that was so deep, this desire to have this promised one, this one that was going to be the heir of David and sit on the throne. Their king, the king of the Jews who would make all things right. Overthrow the tyranny of Rome and people like Herod. So lots of tension. And then in Matthew uh, 2, both verses 5 and 6, I find it so interesting that he calls his chief priests together and he asks them, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they tell him, well, it's in, I believe it's the prophet Micah, and they, he quotes it there. It's in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what is written. And I find it so neat the way that Matthew tells this story. That rather than having someone like, like John the Baptist or even like, I mean, I'd love to be like narrating, writing my own book and have myself just quoting the, the prophets. But no, Matthew makes it so that it's actually the chief priests giving the evidence, confirming the prophecy about Jesus. And yet, they're the very ones who missed it. The very ones who missed it. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, we move on. Uh, We see Herod calling the Magi secretly and finds out from them exactly the exact time the star had appeared. And then he sends them to Bethlehem. I kind of wondered about this sort of secret meeting. I was like, what sort of what was that all about? And I think I think it clicked for me that if if his staff, if his the people that he's sort of leading with or under him, there's tensions there, it would make sense that if he's wanting to get to be the only one with a stake in power and he needs to kill this child who's been born king of the Jews, then it makes sense that he'd want to do that in secret. He'd want to hide that from people. 
Because on the one hand, he's got people that would want to side with, hey, this is a Jew that's been born according to a prophecy from the line of David to be our king. That sounds really good versus this tyrannical kind of Gentile person who's ruling over us. Right? Um, I can't help but think in, in sharing, kind of sharing this story and sort of spending some time with this this week that I, that I actually begin to see some of my own story take place in the midst of this as I get ready for Christmas. Now, I don't want to alarm you, but I do see a little bit of Herod in myself. In this way, that uh, given the season and Herod has access to these prophecies and these men have just shown up to worship, rather than being about what God is being about, Herod has his own agenda. His agenda is power, it's control, it's hanging on to that, it's remaining at the top. And if I'm honest, as I read this, there's a part of this scripture that reads my heart in saying, how often have I been like those chief priests and like Herod and missed the meaning of Christmas? Missed the purpose of what this season is all about? Another thing that makes me laugh about verses 7 and 8 is that he tells them that as soon as you find him, come tell me, report to me, so that I too can come and worship. Another way that I relate with Herod is that Herod wanted them to do all the, the hard work, all the searching, all the looking, all the finding. I mean, come on. They'd been at it for months already, and they were already so close. Bethlehem was just like a stone's throw six miles down the road. Let's send them there. When you find them, come back. And we, we know that Herod has these misintentions um, about what he wants to do with that child when he's found. And yet, I kind of realize too that sometimes I want other people to do the heavy lifting, to do the hard work for me. And it fosters sort of my own misintentions of missing the point of Christmas. It doesn't work that way. We don't get to have others do the hard work. Each of us, I believe, must seek and look for Christ on our own. It's not the responsibility of anybody else. I mean, others can help us, but ultimately, it's up to us. In verses 9 and 10, uh, after they've heard the king, they go on their way. Uh, and this is the crazy thing, is that this star that has led them to Jerusalem, because, I mean, where else would a noble king of the Jews be born but in Jerusalem? So they get there and they find, oh, no, there's a prophecy that sends them to Bethlehem. They knew the way to Bethlehem. They didn't need a star to lead them the rest of the way. They knew where Bethlehem was. They didn't know where the child was exactly, but they knew where how to get to Bethlehem. But no, it seems almost that, according to the story, that as they leave Jerusalem, this star arises again. And yet, this star is unlike any other star. I mean, the only moving stars that I see are shooting stars, right? When I look at the stars at night. 
But this star actually guided them not only to Bethlehem, but in some way, very specifically to the exact location where Jesus was. And they followed it. Um, Part 10 says that when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I don't think it's so much the star in and of itself, but it says that the star came over and it stopped where the child was. And I think sort of that moment of, imagine it, they've been traveling following this star for months. It's come at great cost to them. That they've had to lay out finances, room and board, probably suffer hardships, uncertainty, um, less than probably a warm welcome in Jerusalem, only to be sent on their way. And then all of a sudden they come to the end of their journey. The star has stopped. And I think they're overcome with joy at knowing what this moment is. I think Matthew it puts this sentence in there so that we will take stop Take time to stop and look at why they're so excited and appreciate the journey that they've been on. And yet now, uh, if you would, they're at the very doorstep of Jesus Christ's place. Wow! I, I get so amazed by that. I think that's so exciting after all that journey. Now, could you imagine if they'd got there and were just like, we did it. We're here. The kids right kids in there. Let's go. And they packed up and turned around. Not a chance. Right? That would be that would be crazy to think of doing. And yet sometimes, if I'm honest with you, this story reads my life in such a way that I find myself in many, many, many situations at the doorstep of what Christ wants to show me, what he wants to reveal to me, and I'm so amazed to be in that moment, and I know what lies ahead, and yet there's something in me that turns from that and walks away. That even after searching and searching and searching and searching to get there, that you lose heart or you lose hope and you walk away. I wonder if how many of us, that if we liken our faith journey to the journey that these wise men have been on, I wonder how many of you might agree that you've been searching and you've been looking and you've been following, doing your best to follow. And you're, you're ready to give up. You're, you're, you're getting discouraged. The evidence doesn't seem to be adding up to you or people have talked you out of it. And yet you're, you're at the doorstep you're at the very doorstep of where Christ is. There's only one step left to cross that threshold and enter in to where Christ is. Verses 11 and 12 end off our story here. On coming to the house, they enter, of course, and there they see the child with Mary. And get this, they bow down. They prostrate themselves before him, and they worship him. They worship him. Now, it's interesting to think about, it's interesting to think about what this might have been like. 
I mean, here you have some probably older men uh, kind of in their caravans, and they show up randomly at this small, humble house. Uh, there's no guards. There's no, you know, and yet this is the born king of the Jews, and they walk in, and there's not even a, a husband there to, you know, to, to kind of guard or, or mediate or anything. There's just the, simply the child and his mom. And this kid is like almost two years old. I just wonder what that would have been like. You know, I picture like them coming in and him sitting on Mary's lap and them being like caught up in the moment and they bow down to worship and Mary's like just so glad that this is the first time Jesus has been still all day, right? All day, it's the first time. And he's curious about these new people who are here. And I don't think a, I don't think a two-year-old can understand what's taking place before him. But God knows. And God has orchestrated this whole affair. The whole thing has been God's idea right from the very beginning. Because this was going to be the child that nations were going to be drawn to. The nations were going to be called to worship. And there they are bowing down before him. And we have a part here where they present their gifts. And I, I find the gift part really neat. Um, I can imagine, like, like, what's Jesus doing with gold coins? Like, really, what would my son do? He would be, like, throwing them, dumping them out, just treating them as commonplace. Same with these other things. And yet these were the very best that these men had to offer as gifts to a king. And I think it's interesting because I don't think that these wise men fully knew, fully knew who Jesus was. I don't think that they knew, I think they knew that he was the king, and I think they knew that he was the Messiah, but I don't think that they knew that he was God incarnate. And what, what makes me think about that is, I don't think they had any way of knowing the significance of who Jesus was. I don't think they had any way of knowing that because Jesus' mission was not simply to be born. But Jesus had a greater mission ahead of him. A life mission that was going to call him to sacrifice and humble himself in a way that would, no one else would be able to understand. And I have a hunch that these wise men didn't know who he was because they turned and they left. I mean, thank the Lord as this story kind of continues with the tension with Herod. Uh, they're actually warned in a dream not to go back and let Herod know. So they go take a long way home. And it's at that moment that God intercedes again, makes Joseph and Mary aware of the trouble at hand of Herod's anger and the child and his family escaped safely to Egypt. It's an amazing story. One thing about the gifts, I'll mention this and then I'll uh, move on, is, is sometimes we make too much of these gifts, although it is quite interesting. I don't think the wise men knew exactly who Jesus was, and yet there's some significance read into sort of the three gifts that they brought. Interestingly enough, gold being the gift you would bring for a king, um, frankincense being uh, something that would be used in temple worship. So kind of people see that as sort of like a symbolism that of his deity, of him being God. And then finally, myrrh, this um, spice or, or aroma um, that is used in burial. 
to foreshadow Jesus' death. Now, I don't know if the wise men actually knew all of that. I mean, how could they? And yet I would be amiss with you if I didn't say that this is where our story needs to land and where our verdict needs to come to the forefront is that Christmas, the story about beautiful baby Jesus in a nativity scene, in a manger, is nothing, means nothing without this baby's death and resurrection. Christmas means nothing without Easter. Now, I realize that um, given this season, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, just like there is in this story, with lots of tension, uh, stuff happening, uh, stars moving, caravans traveling, um, the stresses of what Herod might do, for us, too, this Christmas season holds a lot of challenges. I mean, yeah, I need grace every time I get together in a large scale with my family. Just going to be totally transparent with you on that. Don't raise your hands if you agree with me or you're with me in that, although your prayers I would appreciate. But I know what it's like to need to know what to do, how to respond. And so I want to introduce you... Um, this is kind of, we're winding down the service here, but I want to I walk you through a tool that can be very useful. It's a simple acronym to use during this season. And it should be easy to remember, it's STAR, okay? So it should be really easy to remember, okay? So I'm going to walk you through this. Once I walk you through this, uh, I'll give a little bit more chatter, and then um, I'm going to invite later on, I'm going to invite... Um, Tammy's going to come up, and she's going to lead us in a corporate song, okay? And then after that, uh, Laura Blackman's actually going to come up, and she's, we, we really felt like this, this time of year, that we'd be doing a great disservice to simply give you the preaching of the word and then send you off to enjoy your Christmas without all, giving you an opportunity to respond, okay? So I just want you to know that that's, that that's coming. Here we go. Um, sort of in... in in closing here with uh, this acronym. This Christmas season, with this story, the acronym STAR, how you can practically respond to this message. When things get overwhelming and you don't think you're going to be able to make it, here's what you need to do. The first thing is, you need to stop what you're doing. You need to take a break. You need to stop. I find this so tough. I find that trying to turn my thoughts towards God amidst a stressful time, um, much of my praying is done behind the wheel of my van as I'm driving in a panic to get to the grocery store and get back, um, you know, or at home. Uh, the very little cleaning that I do, though I am, oh, she's not even there to chastise me on this. I mean, I do so much cleaning at home. She stepped out to feed my baby, so that's awesome. So much cleaning when I'm at home that often it's just so busy and so chaotic that the only time I can connect with God is when I'm rushing around doing that. And you know what? I think God sees that. He sees the, the intent of our heart. But sometimes we need something more. You need to actually, this season, when you're feeling overwhelmed or feeling a bit lost, you need to stop what you are doing. Take a break and stop. Number T. Number T. Love it. Letter T. Take a deep breath. 
When you come to the point where you're almost at the end of yourself, not sure which direction to go or what to do, take a deep breath. It feels so good. And in doing that, some of you, some of you are so relaxed, like, like so relaxed all the time that for you to, to stop and take a deep breath is like, you're like, that's my constant state of movement anyways, right? That I'm just so relaxed and so chill. So it comes very easy for you. But for others of you, taking a deep breath and relaxing becomes very difficult. It actually, the thought of doing, the thought of stopping and doing nothing stresses you out and makes you want to be busier. But it was, it's the busy people in our story that miss it, right? It's the humble ones that come to Jesus that get it. And so you need to take a deep breath. And part of that deep breath maybe for you is this idea of letting go. Maybe there's false expectations that you have of yourself or that other people have on you. You just need to let that go. You need to just let that go. And we move on to A. And here's where it gets gets good. In that moment, take some time to appreciate Jesus. To appreciate him. To like the Magi who journeyed and found him they stopped. They didn't just excite that they've, they've come to the, the end of their journey and they've done it. They found Jesus, give them the gifts and leave. They actually stop and they bow down and they worship him. Friends, he is so worthy of our worship, so worthy of our appreciation. And you know what? This Christmas season, worshiping God is the best thing you got going for you. It is. You have no idea where, what he will speak or how he will minister or how he will change circumstances or open your eyes to a, a fresh revelation or a new understanding about a family dynamic that's gone haywire. But those, those don't come by us reasoning and working to think them out. It simply comes by us by saying, you know what? There's something that matters more than this right now. And that's Jesus, to worship Jesus. Something Herod never got to do, something that the chief priests missed out on, we have that opportunity every single day. And then finally, the last one, number R, respond in faith. From that position of worship, of being caught up with who Christ is, and what he's done for you by going to the cross, dying for your sins, filling you with his life. I miss it. There was a passage in John. Don't worry about going back to it. Um, but John writes in his gospel, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Life in his name. And I would be so bold as to say that I think John's sentiment there about his book is applicable to all the Gospels. That they're written so that we might have life in his name. And so after you find yourself appreciating and getting caught up in a moment of worship and turning your attention to Jesus, that then you can go back into the chaos, into the hecticness of Christmas meal, Christmas dinner, and respond in faith 
knowing that God is good. Tammy, I'm just going to invite you to come on up and get ready to lead us. You know, as she comes, friends, it's in living a life of faith in response to Jesus that shines as a witness to others about him. It's not about holding a specific um, personal conviction. In the sense that those wise men followed a star that led them to Jesus. An amazing encounter with God. I think too that for us, that this, this series that we've been on, evaluating all the evidence, that it's just that. The evidence can be a guiding light, but it is not the light. Do you hear what I'm saying? Sometimes we get so caught up on the minute in that it's really important to describe was, what was that star. And if I can't make sense of what that star was and I can't meet a resolve, then oh, I must throw the whole thing out. It's not about that. Uh, John Piper uh, makes a quote. And he says it this way. In talking about something very similar, he says, those with a mentality for the marginal seldom have a capacity for deep joy in central truths. I'll read it again. Those with a mentality for the marginal seldom have a capacity for deep joy in central truths. And let me tell you, God wants you to be a, a well that is full and that is deep and has a large capacity for the central truth that Christmas is all about Christ. And then, in turn, he invites us you know, the book of Matthew isn't able to go and hug your family members, right? A lot of people in our lives don't have access to reading scripture. But they hang out with you every Christmas. Or they're around you every day. And so I won't read it, but there's a passage in Philippians that encourages believers to press on, to work out their, 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 their sanctification, their faith in fear and trembling. And he goes on, so that you might shine like stars in the heaven. That you would give testimony about the love of God that has come. And that can be expressed only in and through you. So with that, I'm going to invite Tammy. Uh, I invite you all to stand. We're going to have a time to respond together uh, to the Lord in a song. And then Laura Blackman's going to come up and she's going to lead us in what I believe is a very key kind of prayer moment uh, for maybe many of you and many of you as families. And so we'll, uh, Laura will come up after we sing this song.